I love family and friend stories. You know, the stories that we tell together around the campfire, around the dining room table, uh, the stories that make us laugh or the stories that make us remember and recall, but especially those stories that give us insight into where we come from and who we are. Those small little stories that kind of point to the big story of us. Uh, my mom tells me one of those family stories about me when I was six years old, uh, that I, on a, on a lengthy car trip, delivered a long lecture into a tape recorder about the plot of Star Wars from beginning <laughs> to end, uh, which I'm still doing on road trips. Today, I just call it parenting. I do that for the benefit of the education of my kids too. Uh, maybe someday we'll call that podcasting of speaking of those stories and that too. There's something in me that's always, I think, sought to understand the big story, the whole plot of it all, and to discuss it into microphones, apparently. It's part of who I am. Uh, but in all of our lives, there's these little glimpses that we can get that give us a view of the larger picture, these small stories that point toward the big story, the story of a God who so loves this world and all of its sacred wonder and diversity, who so loves all of us and is at work for love within us and through us and with us and for us, for love. And so this summer, we're going to look at some of the stories that exist in our scripture library, uh, some of which you may or may not have heard before, stories like Jonah and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the stories of Jesus and Zacchaeus, stories that always have good kids' songs to go along with them too, and ask why they were told and why they were written down, and what do these small stories point us to, to something true about the big story, about who God is and who we are and how we are loved and how we are called to love each other. And besides, with Vacation Bible School beginning in a week, us adults need to act like we know what our kids are talking about when they come home from school. And so knowing some of these stories are going to be good things for all of us. And so today, we have a treat along the way. We're going to briefly look at one part of a central story in our scriptural library. And then we'll hear a little bit about how that story continues to reverberate uh, as we hear a little from some folks who took a trip back to the border to live in a reflection of this story a few weeks ago as well. And so today we're talking about one part of the big story that we call the Exodus. The Exodus. And the Exodus story is a great place for us to start because if there's any central defining story in our library of Scripture, it is the Exodus story. The story of the liberation of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And the way that that liberation epitomized in a special way this special relationship of covenant love between God and Israel and indeed to all humanity. And to this day, that Exodus story is at the center of Jewish identity and heritage. Families gather each year at Passover to tell the story of this liberation moment together. And so many of the ethical teachings that you find in Hebrew scriptures draw on this story of liberation and the kind of God that it shows God to be and how we are to live in response. And so it's, you find this in places like Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, how the Exodus story frames the ethic of the people. It says, Do not deprive the fatherless or the foreigner among you of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is why I command you to do this. You are experiencing liberation and justice through the work of God, and so extend that to the people around you. This Exodus story was a big deal in the story of life. And to top it all off, 
Um, it's also, the Exodus story is also one of the um, absolute best Bob Marley and the Whalers albums, too. And so Exodus continues to be, yeah, okay, Vicky's with me on that. Exodus continues to be a big deal. In many, uh, as one of my seminary professors taught, taught us, uh, in many ways, the story of Israel that you find in Scripture really begins at the Exodus story. Uh, you find the prehistory in the first book in Genesis, and uh, the Torah has, has five books, first five books of, the, of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Genesis is the prehistory, and Exodus is this story of liberation, and the rest are kind of the aftermath of this. But Genesis is like the, prehist- the prequels. And like all prequels, they set up the themes, and they tell us how people got their names and places got their names. And like the prequels, they have a lot of wild stories in them. Luckily, Genesis doesn't have Jar Jar or midichlorians or anything like that. But the Genesis prequel ends with the death of a guy named Joseph. And you may have heard of Joseph before out there. Uh, He's the dude with the Technicolor dream coat, uh, which is just appropriate for Pride Month here, too, to put that up there. So Joseph was a Hebrew guy who served in the court of Egypt. And when a famine hit his homeland, he welcomed in his refugee family, his brothers and their father, and was reconciled with them. And his father's name was Jacob, or Another name that he had was Israel. And so he welcomed in Jacob and the people of Israel into where Joseph was in Egypt. And they would make their home there for about 400 years as the tribe of Israel. But the book of Genesis, this prequel, ends with Joseph's death and eventually the end of that era together. And that's where the story of Exodus begins. Uh, At the beginning of Exodus, it recounts the generations and the time passing, about 400 years in Bible time. And then Exodus 1 says this, Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We're always afraid of the other in our spaces. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them, with forced labor. And thus begins the enslavement of the people who are descended from Israel. And thus begins the story, in many ways, of the Exodus event. Their liberation from captivity, the formation of a community, and the aftermath that plays out in those books of Torah where the Israelites realize that through this liberation that they are called to be a new kind of people that have been liberated and are at work for liberation in our world that have been welcomed by the love of God and are called to be welcoming, that are loved by God and are called to love their neighbor in a way unlike any other tribe of the day. And so in the Bible's timeline, the Exodus story begins about 13 or 1400 BCE, and it was led by a man named Moses that we'll hear about, who was an Israelite and a Hebrew. Uh, Israelite was like the tribe, and Hebrew was like the cultural language term for it, so both those things, who stood up to Pharaoh. And he called, led the people descended from Israel and other people along with them out of Egypt into Canaan, which is now Israel, Palestine. And so the short story of Moses' life is that he grew up adopted into the Egyptian court and raised as an Egyptian after being rescued from the river by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as an Egyptian elite. He dressed as an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian. He probably walked like an Egyptian to... Um, sorry, I just had to put that in there somewhere. All right, thank you. Um, 
But as an adult, Moses uh, wrestled with these two identities that he lived in. And he saw an Egyptian master mistreating an Israelite slave. And he intervened in an altercation. He killed the Egyptian. And in fear, he flees Egypt into the desert where he spent years in hiding, working as a shepherd. And it was out there in this fleeing in his story, doing shepherd work, that Moses realized that his story wasn't over yet. And so here's where it gets a little wild. Moses, the story says, had an encounter with God, not on a temple or on a mountain, but right in the middle of his life, out in the desert, in the sheep field. He comes upon a burning bush. And there's Mark Chagall's painting of this. In that encounter, Moses, who before had just known the Egyptian pantheon, learns this God's name, but also learns God's character, a character of compassion and justice and liberation, and learns that unlike the distant, capricious deities of Egyptian lore, this God invites Moses not to subservience, but to be a part of the serving work of God's love in our world. Moses feels called, and his heart is stirred by God on behalf of the captive, of the oppressed, of the enslaved. I don't know about you, I've never encountered God quite like that in a burning bush before, in any kind of bush I've never encountered God, Um, but I've felt my heart stirred by God before. Like God was nudging me and saying, go, you have a part to play in this work of liberation, in this work of justice and compassion in our world, and sometimes that nudge is into big things, to stand up or to resist. Sometimes it's simply to go into our world and to offer a kind word in the spaces we go to someone in the grocery or the workplace. And so when I hear this story of Moses, I want to hear it through the lens of my own experience. In the way, maybe not through a burning bush, but through something burning inside of me, God is stirring. And so the conversation between Moses and God begins like this. Exodus 3.7 says that the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. God hears the cries. God hears the cries of those who are hurting. We've experienced places in our lives where we hear it too, and it feels like God and the whole cosmos is being moved by that hearing. And so pay attention to those places because I think God is there too. And God says further that that God draws near. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which was like a good thing back then, I think, in those days. God draws near, the story says. And theologically, we know that God is always near in every place and circumstance. We also know that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hurt and injustice and oppression, and in those places in some way, especially God is near to us. And in those places, if we have eyes to see that we can catch a glimpse of God with us. But beyond God hearing and God drawing near, God invites Moses, and I think invites us into the story as well. So Exodus 3.10 says, So now go, God says to Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And this is how God so often works. That God drawing near and being with us, then sends us out, sends us to represent God's character. In response to injustice, God calls us to be people of justice, to be people of liberation and of love, to be people of listening and lamenting and learning and lending ourselves for the love of our neighbor 
as ourselves. That's who our God is, a God who hears, who draws near, and who sends us out to be people of liberation in our world, saying that we have a part to play in that work of love. So now go, God says, I am sending you. And I felt that stirring invitation, maybe not in a burning bush, but from something burning in me, stirring my heart for the wounds of the world and for the hurt of our neighbor. Maybe you've felt that stirring before. But always when that stirs in me, the first response for me is just this feeling of utter inadequacy. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know all the answers. I don't have wisdom or words in the midst of this. And that's exactly how Moses responds. And so here's what Moses says back. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you that we do this in the power and the work of God and moving in our world. But Moses isn't satisfied with that. That doesn't seem practically helpful sometimes. But Moses continues arguing. He says to the Lord, Oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past or even now that I've spoken to you, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I'm pretty sure I've said exactly that to God. Yeah, I don't talk so pretty. I don't have rousing speeches. All I've got is lectures about Star Wars plot, and I'm not sure how that's going to help me in this. The Lord says this to Moses, the story says, Who gives speech to mortals? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. God's saying to Moses, yes, you have a lot to learn, but you will learn it. As you go, but begin by going. Lift up your voice and speak the words of liberation that God is giving you. Stand up, speak out, dare greatly. That is the way of the God of love, and God is with you. And so reading this conversation between Moses and, and God, I thought of something that I heard the great poet of liberation, Maya Angelou, say. She wrote, do the best you can until you know better. And then, when you know better, do better. Go and do the best we can. And along the way, through the wisdom of neighbor and the God who's with us, we can learn to do better. But every step of our journey, it begins by responding to that invitation, by doing, by going, by responding to the things that move and stir and break God's heart. And it's that simple invitation that is a part of the power of this story. And so Moses did that. He went, and he stood before Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world, and said, God says, let my people go. And the story tells us that in time, both Pharaoh and Moses found out that God truly is a God of liberation and love for all people, even when that seems impossible. But that it takes a person, it takes people willing to stand up, to go, and to do the best they can, and to learn along the way to do better. And that story of God's love and of liberation we see in the Exodus isn't over yet. There's work to do in our lifetime. God hears the hurt in our world and draws near, and God stirs us and sends us and is with us and offering us the words of liberation and love to offer. God is with us with help on the way. But God is also reminding us that the story isn't finished yet. And so here's how the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel 
the great rabbi and civil rights leader. He's the rabbi-looking guy kind of over there. (laughs) He told this story about the Exodus when he was invited by Martin Luther King Jr. to address the 1963 Conference on Race and Religion. And he said those words. He said, this story is not finished. And so here's what Heschel said. He said, at the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. Moses' words were, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they might celebrate a feast to me. While Pharaoh retorted, who is the Lord that I should heed this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then Heschel says this, the outcome of that summit meeting, this great work of liberation that God is working in our world has not come to an end. Pharaoh is not ready to capitulate. The exodus began, but it is far from having been completed. I think these words are true for us in many ways. Today is still not, uh, we are not liberated, not by race or ethnicity or gender orientation. We are not done with this work, but we are still being invited into that great summit meeting between Moses and God and Pharaoh. And along that way, God is still with us. And I know I I still respond in that same way as Moses. Who am I to be a part of this? I don't have the words or the wisdom. Who am I? And so I go back to that word from my Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. But it begins with doing. And so to encourage us in that doing, I want to tell you a little bit of the legacy of some folks from here in this community, in this church, who took that going and doing to heart. Uh, Last year, when the stories began to emerge of child separation, we began to see what had been happening for a while, these growing numbers at the border of families coming, seeking asylum in our country, began to surface. And we began to see just gut-riching stories of that family separation. Many of us here in this church asked, what can we do? We knew that God was hearing this, that God was stirring our hearts. We didn't know how to go. Well, the best way to go, apparently, (laughs) is just to go. And so a couple of people from this church, uh, Molly Tamke and Cynthia Reeves and their spouses and others, just headed down to the border to help last July. God stirred them, and they went to see what they could do. And because of that work of going for the last year, groups from this church have been regularly going to support people and organizations that are working in the Rio Grande Valley that are assisting asylum seekers all through the process and in the aftermath of going through immigration services in our state, in our country. And a a few of us went in January uh, here from this community, and a few more of us went uh, just last month. And uh, I've invited one of the people who went on that trip, Laura Bird, to come tell us a little bit about that experience. In particular, because there was someone that we met this time that I think in a really powerful way exemplified that story of what it looks like to answer Moses' call. 
to understand that you don't have all the answers and the words and the wisdom, but simply to go and to do. So welcome, Laura Bird, to the stage. Awesome. I'm pretty sure. One, two. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you. I'm honored. So uh, Laura and I went together in January, and then Laura led a group in May. Uh, Laura is the worship leader at uh, Mosaic uh, Service here at this church, and so it's great to have you across the hallway here in this place. Um, So tell us, uh, something was different about this trip when you went. Uh, I mean, certainly it was was heart-moving and stirring. But when you went, you went and worked uh, a lot at a place called Catholic Charities that's receiving people who've been processed by the immigration services and have uh, received kind of asylum, in the midst of their asylum paperwork, have been released into the country awaiting a trial date. And they're oftentimes dropped off at either a bus station or sometimes at the door of Catholic Charities, a charity organization that's working in McAllen, Texas, along the Rio Grande Valley. And so tell us a little bit about what you found when you got to Catholic Charities this time. Sure. So um, Catholic Charities um, is an amazing place, and uh, they are just really overwhelmed right now. When we went in January, um, I don't know, what do you think? There were 50 people, 100 people. It was, I mean, it was still um, powerful and moving. Um, We were giving out shoes and clothes and hygiene um, uh, items. But... um, this time when we went, uh, my heart and my mind weren't quite prepared for what we saw. Um, we came in, we saw between 700 and 1,000 refugees that are dropped off on the buses. Uh, most of these people are from Central America. They are there just for a couple of nights until they get on a bus and go to wherever they're going. Most of them don't have, um, they may have not had a change of clothes in days uh, or showers or brush their teeth. Um, and most of them, though, when, they, uh, when we went in there, they just wanted clothes for their children and shoes for their children. They weren't even worried about themselves. Um, and these are all family units. Um, it's not uh, maybe what you necessarily hear on the news, that it's just men coming. Um, these are families. And uh, when we walked in there, we brought about eight people. And there were probably maybe four or five Catholic charity volunteers. So what's that? (laughs) 13 volunteers for a thousand people. They're lined up at the door. Um, and we're just doing the best we can. It's really hot. There's no air conditioning. Uh, the rooms are really stuffy and, uh, we're just doing everything we can to get them shoes closed, but the donations, um, there's just not enough. There's not Mm. enough to give out. Um, but one thing we did uh, as we worked, we also on the third day fed people. We fed a thousand, between 700 and a thousand people. You see Dale there. Um, and it took all day to prepare that. So it was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. Very hard. Yeah. And so tell us the person who coordinated that, that feeding opportunity, uh, Myra, yeah. uh, tell us a little bit about her and how she got involved, because I think she's, um, she's pretty cool, she's pretty cool <laughs> for us, she's and she's definitely cool one who, who responded to that call to do. So Myra is, is, is a woman, a bold woman, that <laughs> decided to do something, and she was there just helping, cleaning showers, um, doing anything she could, being there, and she realized that these people um, aren't eating any, I mean, they give them a couple snacks, but they're not eating a real meal for 
maybe two days, and, you know, there's children that aren't eating. So she started bringing food. And uh, I guess they didn't really want her to, so she did it on the down low, (laughs) and she just kind of snuck it in. She was bringing burgers and pizza and just buying it. Um, But then the need got so great where there was a thousand, you know, a night that she said, you know, I have to start making food. So um, she didn't really coordinate or, like, plan it all out. She just started doing it in her kitchen. And, um, yeah. And she, at first, she's been doing it for five years, you guys. The first three um, were just locals. But now she has a Facebook page and um, she's doing more. And people are coming from all over the country. We met... um, someone from like Wyoming that was there for a week just to serve food and um I just it's, it's really amazing uh so she started um bringing it in sneaking it in actually throwing it in the bins so they wouldn't know um so she finally asked Catholic Charities hey I'm doing this I'm gonna do it and they were like no we don't really want you to do it um and she said, I'm just, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so they said, well, we'll see how long this lasts. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think and she. Uh, five years. Is, yeah, uh, is I think five time. years. <laughs> you know, like I see her and you see people like that that go in the community and do these amazing things. And you think that they are like a hero or a savior type person. Like they're special, but they're just people that decided to get up and do it to feed people in their own kitchen. Sometimes you just Hmm. have to start. That's awesome. I asked you a very uh, preacher question, which is one of the things we asked, which was, where where did you see God? And I was kind of stunned uh, because there's always, you see Christ in the faces of the people you're working with. You see God at work in the people there. But the, the thing I think that, that surprised me is that you said you had a hard time seeing God at work in that space yeah. until you saw Myra doing it. You saw that, that in some ways we are the ones that are called to be the ones at work, to bring God's work into those places. And so what do you think we can learn from the example of Myra? Um. Well, you know, it was, it was pretty hard when we got there. Um, we, uh, it was really hot. It was stuffy. We were bringing one or two people on at a time to try on shoes um, with people lining at the door. Um, and I kind of broke down um, and had to leave the room several times to go cry. And, you know, I said to myself, this is kind of my motto. You can do hard things. You can do hard things. And so I just had to ask God, please give me the strength to do this. These people are doing this. I can do this, right? And so sometimes you just have to step out in faith and start working, um, even though you might fail. And I learned that, you know, I've struggled with how to be a Christian in this world, how to really live out being a Christian. Is it going to church? What is it? And when I had this experience, um, when you see Christ in those people and they see Christ in you, I felt like I really understood what being a Christian is. It's mm-hmm. being Christ in the world. Wow. Yeah. We, uh, we can make it pretty complicated. Yeah. But at the end of the it's day, really it's really simple. about embodying that love. Yeah. 
in the places we go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for embodying that love. And thank you for sharing a little bit of that story with us. We're going to have a link up on our open uh, Facebook page later today with an opportunity to support uh, some of the ministries of Myra. And then we're going to be planning another trip uh, that'll be happening uh, in the early fall. Um, but there'll probably be some others going between now and then. And so we'll let you and know. And I'll just say, guys, this that. is a life-changing experience. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you want to go. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's give Laura a hand. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. In that way, that same way that, that Myra um, asked, you know, what can I do? And she began by, by cleaning showers just as a way of helping. But the answer is, is that once we begin to ask that question, what can we do? The answer is so much. <laughs> we can do so much. And Myra's work multiplied and God, in God and, and, uh, and people after God's heart have multiplied that work beyond imagination. And so that's why we can go and do, because we go, just as Moses was told, we go with God. That God is already ahead of us at work in every life and in, through us and with us as well. Our God is a God of love and liberation, and God is at work already in this world and invites us to join in that. And so Abraham Heschel, when he was concluding that speech at the, count, at the uh, uh, conference on religion and race, ended with this story of the way that God works in the world. And here's what he said. Justice, it's God's power in the world. It's a torrent, an impetuous drive, full of grandeur and majesty. At times, it seems like the surge is choked or the sweep is blocked, yet the mighty stream will break all the dikes and dams. In the eyes of the prophets, justice is more than an idea or a norm. Justice is charged with the omnipotence of God. What ought to be, shall be. And so though that Exodus story has not yet ended, the outcome is sure. The outcome of that summit meeting between Moses and Pharaoh is that what ought to be shall be. And we, as God's people, stirred and called by God, are invited in the power of a God who is with us and for us and through us, called to help make it so. May we be people who help bring about the story of the Exodus in our time. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the way that you are at work in the world and in us in all places. Be with us this week that we might be people of your liberation and love as we go in the world, that this story may live on in us and that through our work with you with us, what ought to be shall be. Thank you for your love and for this invitation to find ourselves in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.